Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Good morning. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. Before we get there, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, it is nearing to Christmas. And with that, Father, we have opportunity to celebrate the coming of the Christ born of a virgin, the son of David, the child of Mary, in Bethlehem of Judea, as the prophets foretold. As the angels shouted to the shepherds, as the stars announced to the wise men, and as your word proclaims to us. Father, I pray we would not miss the wonder of Christmas because it is familiar, because we celebrate every year, because many of us have been celebrating since we were children and now we are long past being children. Father, I pray we would not miss out on the, the majesty and the miracle that is the fact that the eternal Son of God became incarnate in a woman's womb and was born and lived among us. Father, I pray that uh, we would have eyes open to see the glory that is Christmas. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you again this week. Christmas is coming. Only a little more than a week, and it will be here. And, uh, you know, when you really think about it, the, the what of Christmas is really pretty incredible. Uh, I was reminded of that this last week. I was talking with Rick Rosetto at our elder meeting, and he was telling all of us uh, at the meeting about an experience he'd had earlier this last week. Uh, he was going to be speaking to a group of teenagers, and so he was going to talk to them about uh, why Jesus had to be born in a stable. And the answer he was going to give all of them was he had to be born in a stable because he was the lamb who was to be born, Right? Uh, and just like every, every little sheep is born in a stable, so God's lamb, when he came, it was appropriate he was born in a stable because he was the lamb of God, right? Well, uh, as he began to talk to them about that, he quickly realized that they had no idea, this particular group of kids he was talking with, what the Christmas story even was. They'd never heard it. And so he backed up and he told them the whole story. And literally, he said, their mouths hung open at the idea that the eternal Son of God came to be the virgin-born, fully human, fully God person, Jesus of Nazareth. They had no idea. They didn't know about prophecies or wise men or the star, or the shepherds, or that the angels shouted for joy. They hadn't heard about the census, or the inn, or the stable. 
for that matter. And so it is really true that we need to tell and to retell uh, every year the story of Christmas because it is increasingly the case that people in our culture have no idea actually what Christmas is all about. The closest they maybe get is the Charlie Brown Christmas special where Linus stands there and quotes Luke 2, right? Uh, and he says, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And I'm, and I'm always amazed every year that they still show that on TV, right? But, uh, but it is increasingly the case that we need to tell and retell the story because many people in our world have never heard it. But for us, those of us who have heard it, we need to understand not just the what of Christmas, the what happened, but also the why. And the scriptures, if you read them, uh, are just abundant. They're shot through with explanations of the significance of Jesus' coming, the why. Uh, from Galatians 2, we read that, that Jesus came to redeem us from slavery and to make us God's sons. We looked at that. Colossians chapter 1 teaches us that Jesus reveals who God is and what he is like and that he came to reconcile all creation to God and to make peace between God and all of his creation. That's an amazing thing. You would go to Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 will tell you that Jesus is God's final word, that in the past God spoke through the prophets in many portions and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. If you read John chapter 1, you'll read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you, you can just read your Bible and you can get explanations of the why of Christmas and why it is so significant that Jesus came. And I want to show you one more uh, here uh, before Christmas. Why did, why did God's eternal Son come to be born a Jewish virgin in Bethlehem? And the reason is because God is purifying a people for himself. And we find that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And I want to read those verses for you uh, here at, uh, before we begin. So it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Now, those of you who pay attention when you are in the cafe, you know the verses 11 th through 13 are posted on the wall in there. Um, those of you who just eat donuts, you never notice that. But, <laughs> but uh, verses 11 to 13 are actually in the wall, on the wall in our cafe. Uh, they are great verses. But if you read these verses closely, what you notice there is that all four of these verses are just one long sentence. 
there's a capital letter at the beginning of verse 11, and the period is not to the end of 14. It's just one long sentence where Paul is just expounding on and explaining, and he just has these great lawyer run-on sentences. You know, Paul was trained as an attorney, okay? And, uh, and he, he has all of these long phrases that he just keeps attaching to explain what it is that Jesus is doing in coming into our world. And, and, and even though it's just one sentence, I want to break it down into three sections here just for, for clarity's sake as we look at them. Uh, and in the first two verses here, verse 11 to 12, it says that Jesus came into the world to bring salvation and holiness to people. If you look at verse 11, what you see is Paul begins verse 11 with the word for. And anytime you see that word, you want to figure out what it's for, why it's there. And, what, and the reason it's there is to provide a reason or an explanation, a further clarification of what has preceded it in the text. And what Paul has been doing in chapter 2 is telling Titus, this is a pastoral epistle, it's a letter written uh, by Paul to one of his ministry uh, partners, Titus, who is a pastor, to tell him what to do now that he is a pastor. This is always a good thing, right? It's like when you become a parent and you go, okay, I'm a, I get to be a dad now. I get to be a mom. All right, great. What's next, right? I remember when we took our, our, our uh, took Sarah home from the hospital. Happened to be Valentine's Day, the day we took her home from the hospital, and we had no idea how to get the child dressed, right? <laughs> we we got clothes on the kid, and we put a diaper on her, right? And then we we're kind of like, so they're going to let us take this child home from the hospital, huh? <laughs> and we were kind of like. We don't know what we're doing. We're in a heap of trouble. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you become a pastor, you have that feeling again. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and you just hope nobody notices for a while. <laughs> right? And, um, and you've got a whole lot of things you've got to figure out. Right? And so Paul very helpfully wrote three letters to pastors um, to tell them, what are you supposed to do now that you are one? And, uh, and so he's been telling Titus uh, how it is uh, that he's supposed to, what he's supposed to instruct people to do in terms of how they live. And normally with Paul, what you get as you get in Romans, you know, you get, you get uh, 11 chapters of theology, and then you get a turn from theology to, uh, to how you live for 12 years. 13, 14, 15, you get instruction on how to live as a Christian in light of the theology he's been teaching you. Well, here you get the reverse. Chapter 2, you get, this is how you're supposed to live. And then verse 11 to 14, this is why. This is the theology that that's based on. And he grounds, you'll, you'll notice here, the reason for your obedience is the gospel. That Christ came to lay his life down for you and for me. And so our obedience is not based on duty. It's not based on um, this is what you ought to do. It's based on this is who Jesus is, and this is what he has done for you. 
And in light of that, we obey. Um, For Paul, the basis of our good deed doing is always the gospel. It's always goes back to what the gospel is. The basis for our obedience to God is what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the gospel message always provides the foundation for our good deeds. We don't do good deeds in order to get salvation. Amen? We don't do that. If anyone tells you that, they are wrong. You know, I saw something on Facebook this week uh, where there's apparently a quiz you can take that will determine where you wind up in heaven. You know, whether you wind up either in heaven or in hell, right? And they, they report on, you know, and they actually, you can post it on Facebook, I've seen it, um, where it says, you know, this many good deeds, this many bad deeds, destination, hell, right? Uh, this many bad deeds, this many good deeds, uh, destination, heaven, right? Is that how it works? No. No. It works nothing like that. It works just exactly like this. How many bad deeds did you do? Uh, All of them. (laughs) Right? Uh, How many good deeds did Jesus do? One. He died on the cross for your sins. And you will either go to heaven clothed in the righteousness of Jesus or you will go to hell clothed in your sin. But there isn't a mediating option in which you earn your way in some other method. Okay? Heaven and hell part at the person of Jesus Christ. And we do good deeds because He has saved us, not in order to obtain it. It's very, very important. Don't ever miss that. That you do good deeds because of your salvation, not in order to get it. Because if you have to do good works in order to obtain your salvation, I'll just assure you right now you're going to fail. Your good deeds will never outweigh all of your sin. It's like a guy who gets in a boat in San Francisco Bay and decides to row to Japan and every mile he cuts a three-inch hole in the bottom of the boat. What's going to happen? Not very long offshore, he's going to be swimming. Right? That's where we are. That's where we are as people. But Jesus has come to save us and to make us holy. Good works are not required to gain salvation, but they are the necessary and expected result of having gained it. The Scripture says here, the grace of God appeared, which I think is a beautiful way of of describing and, um, and referencing the fact of Jesus coming, of His birth and His life and His death and His resurrection, that all of these things are all manifestations of God's 
grace to us because it is through these things, as verse 11 says, that salvation has been brought to all people. Now that does not mean that all people will be saved. That does not mean that. What it means is that salvation is now available to all people who will put their trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation is widely available. Anyone can have it that wants it if they will put their trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation has come to all people. It is now available to every person who would turn to Him in faith. That is called grace. That's grace. And according to verse 12, that grace is not only powerful to save us from the, pen, from the penalty of sin, but it also trains us. Look at the verse here. It trains us to be free from the presence of sin in our hearts and in our daily lives. The same grace which saves you and me also equips you and me to get free from sin's presence. So we not only don't experience the penalty of sin, ultimately, in that we are, we, we are taken out of condemnation and hell and judgment and placed into God's family, we escape from sin's penalty, we also escape over time from sin's presence. And it does this two ways. There's a positive side and a negative side. On the negative side, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, these are things that we have to turn away from. We turn away from the way that we used to live as unbelievers, and we resolve to no longer let your freak flag fly. Amen? We resolve to instead... Take those flags down in every area of our lives. And so it gets into how we talk. It gets into how we treat other people. It gets into how we work. It gets into how we live as a, as a mate, as a friend, as a, uh, as a uh, parent. It gets into who we are in our private life when nobody else is around and it's just us. And it says that we renounce ungodliness. In other words, we say, I'm not doing this anymore. Not doing it anymore. Now, does that mean we always succeed? No, it's a training process. Amen? It's a training process. And that's why he says, uh, you know, that it trains us. It doesn't say it immediately transforms us. It says it trains us. It's a process. But we are nevertheless renouncing lust and greed and selfishness and cruelty and hatred and, and every other way of living life that is displeasing to God. Uh, you know, very few of us, uh, without any training at all, I mean, maybe there's some of us out here who could do this, some of you young guys could probably make it happen. But, you know, if I said, hey, we're all going to go out to, tw to 29 and uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, go down uh, without our cars. We're going to either we're going to go on foot. You can either run or you can walk. But we're going to go down to Walmart and meet together. 
That's about 12 miles. Okay. Some of y'all, it'd be no big deal. You know, you should put on your Nikes and you just kind of cruise down the road. You know, I'll see you there. Right? Some of y'all will be like, um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> okay. But most of us, most of us, if we trained over a period of weeks or months, could make it. Might not be able to do it today, but most of us could make it, given training. Okay, Well, in the same sense, this is a training process. Okay, It takes you from where you are today, as an unbeliever, to increasingly transforming you into godliness. And you get further as you go along. You don't, you don't start out just completely holy, but over time, the Lord is transforming you and working in you and training you by grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Amen? Um, the Christian life is not just, though, what we don't do. It's not just what we don't do or what we have stopped doing. It's also the things that we do on the other side of it. Verse 12 says here that God's grace also trains us to live, look at the text here, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Meaning that we learn over time how not only how, how to not just um, you know, stop being selfish, stop being lustful, stop being greedy, stop being hateful, etc. But that we also put on virtues. That we develop the antithesis of those characteristics. That we, you know, we begin to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We begin to not just not be self-focused narcissists, as most of us are, but we instead begin to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? All those fruit of the Spirit things that come out of our life as we're trained by the Spirit by grace. The Spirit comes in as a result of our faith and teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we learn to confess our sin and turn away from it and turn to Him in obedience. And we do these things, by the way, while we're waiting. You ever wondered why, you know, why, when a person comes to Christ, why God doesn't just immediately take them to glory? I've sometimes wondered that, right? Or why when we baptize people, we don't hold them under so they just quit bubbling? <laughs> right? Why, why, why do we not do that, right? It's because God has something for us to do while we're waiting. And what He wants is for us to be trained in purity and in holiness while we're waiting. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for, verse 13, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You know, this, this time of year, we call this, this season of year Advent. It's the time when we celebrate the fact that Jesus came the first time. But Advent carries with it, it's a word that means coming. And it's a reminder that just as Jesus came the first time in fulfillment of God's plan through the prophets, uh, there is another coming, and it is just as clearly if not maybe even more so, proclaimed by the prophets. And we are waiting for that one. Why are we waiting? Well, because it is our blessed hope. The reappearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our blessed hope because what it means is when He shows up, it means that all of God's promises, all of them, from Genesis to Revelation, or as one guy said, I believe the entire Bible from the table of contents to the maps, right? <laughs> but all of, our, all of God's promises from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, all of them are being fulfilled. And so we are waiting for Jesus because we're waiting for the day when all of the things that the Scripture has told us are going to happen, happen. And when Jesus shows up again, that's when they happen. It's our blessed hope. And it means, in other words, it, it means that our wedding day has arrived at long last as the bridegroom comes to claim us and take us home. We are, this is not home. It's not home. Not for any of us who belong to Jesus. Home is with Him. And when He appears, He will take us home. And we can trust that the kingdom is coming not only because it is prophesied, but because of the identity of the King. Look at what the Scripture says here. Look how Jesus is described says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a unique phrase. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus is described that way. Did you know that? It's the only place. It is uh, also a great verse if you're ever talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. They want to tell you that, that Jesus is somehow le a divine being who is somehow less than God. Um, this right here will tell them otherwise. And, and it's translated just like it reads in Greek. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, not to get all hyper-technical on you, okay? But Greek grammar dictates the way it's written that the... It's not our great God, comma, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, are references to the same person. You can look this up if you're really interested in this. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule. Okay, Granville Sharp was a Greek grammarian. He wrote this and he said, look, where you have... Um, where you have... Uh, the, the Greek words written precisely in this pattern, 
where the first one doesn't have an article, the second one doesn't have an article either. They refer to the person described afterwards. Okay? Um, Granville Sharp rule applies here that God and Savior both are descriptors of Jesus. That's not to say just because this is the only time where this construction appears in the New Testament that Paul didn't believe that Jesus was God. It's just the only time he ever wrote it so explicitly. Uh, here's how I know Paul believed Jesus was God. He told people to worship Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to obey Jesus, to put their faith in Jesus. If Jesus were not God, then to tell people to do those things is blasphemy. But Paul clearly states it in a way that nobody can miss it right here in verse 13. That we can trust that the promises are coming true, that the kingdom is coming because of who the king is. King is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he, is, he has written it clearly here to remind us exactly who Jesus is and the fact that, that He is God because He wants us to remember that our hope is not just worldly hope. You know, worldly hope is like this. I hope I get a new gun for Christmas. Right? I do. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, maybe I will. Maybe I'll get socks. <laughs> right? Um, I don't know what's under that tree. Right? I don't know. My boys are really hoping they get a new gun for Christmas too. But, um, you know, but they don't know. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Right? Our hope as Christians is not like that. Our hope is based on the promise of God. And therefore, we hope for things that we do not see, but we know they are going to happen. We just don't know when. We just don't know when. But while we're waiting, He wants us to live in light of that reality. That Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in a certain kind of church where, um, you know, there was there was still a little bit of that old fundamentalist kind of thinking. You know, like, and we, you know, you'd hear things like, you know, you don't want to go to a rated R movie because what if Jesus came back? He'd catch you there. Like, like he didn't already know you were there to start with, right? <laughs> but, but he was in the dark about it, you know, while you were there. But if he came back, he would see you, right? <laughs> I mean, I was like, how dumb is that, right? As I got older and thought about it. But, um, but, but nevertheless, okay, and it's not a fearful thing. And it was always presented to me like a fearful thing, like you don't want to be caught sinning because, you know, and what if Jesus came back and that's the last thing you did, right? And it was presented as a fearful thing. But for a Christian, it's not a fearful thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing. 
my Lord and my God is coming to get me out of this mess. Amen? It's, 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 you know, it's that scene on, you know, on, uh, if you've ever watched the Lord of the Rings movie, and you remember the scene where, where Gandalf rides off to get the riders of Rohan, and these guys are fighting in the dark all through the night, and he says, look for me at the coming of the dawn on the third day right and they've been fighting and there's orcs and there's an invasion and they're like we're, we're, we're all gonna die here <laughs> we're all gonna die in this castle they're gonna overwhelm us and then they're probably gonna eat us and it's gonna be bad right and then at dawn on the third day the white rider appears over the hill right it's a great scene we're waiting for the coming of the white rider to come and get us. Amen? We're waiting for rescue. We're not waiting in fear. We're waiting for the king on a white horse to come and claim those who belong to him. And we're going home. We're getting out of this mess. We're going home. And so we're living our lives now, not in fear, but in expectation and joy because the King's coming and we're getting ready for His appearing. Verse 14, further clarification here. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus' mission was to set people free from sin and to make them his own. You know, we talk, talked about that as we looked at Galatians, but the word shows up here again, the word redeem. Redemption has to do with paying the full price for the release of a slave. I read the other day that over in Libya... Uh, the Arab Muslims there have a fully functioning slave market in black Africans. Everything old is new again. And it's just as horrifying now as it was then. Paul is using, is, is using that word redemption. And he's not using it simply for shock value it's how he really sees our life, our former life, under sin, that we were enslaved. That we were enslaved, and Christ has set us free. Let me ask you, if you really were a slave, and all of a sudden you got free, how many of you willingly go back to it? Not on your sweet September, baby. I am not going back to that for anything. I am not going back. And Paul, when he uses the word redemption, is saying to us, you have been set free. And we don't want to go back. He set us free, not from slavery to another person, but from slavery to sin and death. And He came to purify 
for himself a people to be his, a people for his own possession. You know, as, as you read your Bible, if you read beginning in Genesis and you read all the way to the end, what you find is that God is grabbing people out of the mass of humanity to be his people. And you see, you see beginning right there in Genesis 3, right as soon as people need redeeming, what does God do? God slays an animal and clothes them to cover their nakedness and their shame and to teach them that sin requires death. And if you're going to be in right relationship with God, you're going to have to come through the sacrifice of someone other than you. And so God saves Adam and Eve through redemption, through the payment of blood made on their behalf to cover their sin and their shame. And then as things kind of move along, eventually humanity spreads out, they get super wicked, and God says, I'm going to pick Noah and his family, and I'm going to save them. They're going to be my people. And we're going to start over with them. And then you, you see the nations start to spread out from Noah, and they get super wicked again, and God picks one particular little moon god worshiping Aramean from Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, that's going to be my guy. Abraham, come follow me. I'll take you to a land that you've never seen. You and your wife are going to, even though you're old men and women, are going to have a child in your old age. It's going to be the founding of a new nation, and they'll be my people, and I will be their God. And then as, the, as that nation gets corrupted in its belief, uh, God sends prophets to call them back to repentance. And he Send some that do, are prophets of deed to show them what God requires. And he shows, sends some that are prophets that are writing prophets to tell them all, that, all the ways that they're messing up and all the ways that God wants to help them and redeem them and save them. Because God is saving people. And then you get Jesus coming. And God says, you know what? I'm going to save not just people who, who come into the Jewish community from all nations of the world. I'm going to widen it out, and I'm going to get everybody from every nation to be participants in the kingdom. And eventually, at the end of the book, you see that realized. People from every language and tongue, every tribe and nation, People from all over the world, from every time period, are standing around the throne because God is saving a people for himself. And he is saving them that they might belong to him. And, notice this, underline this part in your Bible, don't miss this, that they might be zealous for good works. That they might that we celebrate our freedom, in other words, the fact that we have been redeemed by doing good works, by living a transformed life, by preparing for the King to come. You know, when if you, if you had the president come into your house, I mean, you, you'd do whatever you had to to make that place stand tall. Right? You might call down to Waco, call up Chip and Joanna Gaines and say, I need help. President's coming, right? <laughs> this is going to look good, right? You get some shiplap on the walls. I mean, you do something, right? Right? You would do something because the president is coming. 
and you want to honor him when he comes. It doesn't matter who he is. It's the fact that the president's coming. But here's the thing. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Our Lord and Savior, our great God and Savior is coming for us and we want to prepare for His arrival. And so we want to live lives of appreciation and joy for the fact that we are redeemed by the blood of the Son. Not out of duty. Not out of grit your teeth of, oh, I guess I'm supposed to be a better person now. <laughs> you know, not out of some kind of drudgery, but out of an overflow of just amazed joy that God would save me and make me his people and call me his own and come back to get me. Amen? So, a couple questions here, and I'll let you, let you alone for this week. First question, how's your training going? How's your training going? Scripture here says that the, that the grace of God has appeared, and it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright, self-controlled, and godly lives in the present age. How's your training going? Are there any areas, big or small, where you have refused to renounce sin? If there are, today's the day. Today is the day to bend your knees and your heart to the, to the Lord and to confess and to renounce that and turn away from it. On the other side, how's your training going? Are you more self-controlled, upright, and godly than you were? You should be. We all should be, right? Because this is the necessary and natural and normal result of a life that is dedicated to following Jesus. And again, it's a process. It doesn't happen all, all at once. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a lifetime. But you should progress, right? Things which are alive grow. We should all be growing. So how's your training going? You see growth happening? I tell you what, as I look around our church as your pastor, I see lots and lots of growth. And lots and lots of people. And it's exciting to me. And if you don't know if you're growing, come see me. I'll tell you. You're growing. Here's some ways, right? It's exciting. Okay? It's exciting. You just got to keep leaning into it over time, okay? It's a little bit over a long period of time. Last thing, Jesus is coming. We know that. And the last thing he told us to do before he left to get ready for his coming 
is what? Make disciples. Right? We got the Christmas season coming. We got lots of opportunity to do two things. Help people to find Jesus and help people to follow Jesus. That's all discipleship is. Helping people to find Jesus and helping people to follow Jesus. So I just want to encourage you to think about what what it might look like this week and this month and this year for you to help somebody to find or follow Jesus a little bit better than they are. Just help somebody else move along a little closer to Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has come, and we thank you that Jesus is coming and that He, having left us here, has left us here with a reason and a purpose that we might honor You with our good deeds uh, in just joyful appreciation for the sacrifice Christ has made for us and the fact that He is coming again. And Father, we pray that we might live our lives in such a way that the exuberant joy of knowing You would flow out of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,